born family. As I said earlier, uh, it is such an honor and a privilege for Diane and I uh, to be with you this morning. I uh, just want you to know that if you are visiting, if you're a guest, uh, you are our honored guest and hope that you uh, stick around after uh, services and, and let us get to know you. And, and I'm in your spot. I'm a visitor too. So uh, please know Jeremy will be back, I believe. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not the guy, so don't, don't worry. Um, someone told me I could talk to the bell run. Was that just this morning? Brian? <laughs> okay. All right. I'll wait for it. <clears throat> just a really quick uh, introduction, uh, if, if you were not uh, in the adult class uh, where we had the opportunity to share just a glimpse of what uh, we get to do in India, our, as the Apostle Paul would say, our open door of faith is India, and we just are so honored that, that we got to share that with you. You have been a partner with us in India for, for several years, and we appreciate you and we thank you for your prayers, because as I said earlier, we know prayer is a real work of our ministry, and it begins here. And Diane and I are just one of the few that get to go to India and, and gather up the results. And so we appreciate you and, and uh, your partnership so, so very much. I, uh, I'm not a, a full-time preacher, never have been. I've had a business career. I was speaking to an old alumni of Oklahoma Christian. Where are you? I, there you are. I, I was uh, uh, similar. I was a business major and computer science guy that went back to his home in Arkansas, where I grew up in Northwest Arkansas. Got a career, and I would just I wanted a career to where I could do mission work as well. And so I was able to do that, and and uh, spent 32 plus years traveling to India other countries even before then. And just, uh, just to let you know, you don't have to be a preacher to go on the mission field. There, there, there are so many functions and responsibility of, of, of being on a mission team that have nothing to do with preaching. So I just wanted to throw that out. I'm always recruiting not only money, but recruiting men. And if you are here today and you're interested in and going, wow, I, I kind of like a weird country like India, and, and I'd like to go travel and visit there, and, and while I'm there, uh, uh, see if I can help a mission team, uh, come see us. We have some brochures uh, tell about us over here. It has my phone number, uh, a way to get a hold of me through email. Uh, please feel free at any time to, to direct any questions or thoughts or let us know, hey, Diane Joe, I want to go. So, anyway, since I've not a, ever been a full-time preacher, I get these weird sermons. So I'm going to share with you a weird evangelistic topic uh, in, a, in a chapter of a book that you may not think of when you think of an evangelistic effort, uh, Luke 16. If you'd turn there with me and just kind of hold your finger there for a few moments, I've got to begin by saying... And we'll start in verse 19 just shortly. But I want to begin by saying, since I was a small boy, and maybe it had to do with my dad was an army ranger 
way back in the day. Me and my brother, I had one brother, and we were adrenaline junkies. I mean, we loved to whitewater raft, kayak, repel, freehand climb, been from the Alps to anywhere, you just name it. We've probably been there uh, doing stuff that today I can't do, <laughs> but uh, not allowed to do. I grew up, maybe, a little bit. We still, even this past year, uh, Diane and I, at our age, we're in our mid-50s or so. No, I am, Diane's not. <laughs> uh, we went on the Okoye River. Anybody heard of the Okoye River? That's where the Olympic team practices their kayaking and their off-season, and it's a serious whitewater river, guys. And uh, if you've never been there, uh, but since I was a boy, I always loved water. I loved white water. I loved rapids, wherever it would be, usually in the mountains. And I grew up in the mountains of Arkansas. And um, I want to tell you about a story. I, uh, uh, I think it was in the Nullichucky River up in Tennessee in the Smokies. About 20 years ago, me and my brother... Uh, both serious kayakers, and we, 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 we heard that the, uh, it was the perfect time of the year to go. It was in April, all the snow was melting, and the water was good. It was really running. And so we drive up to around the Knoxville area, we get a hotel, and I start reading the newspaper when I got to the hotel. It was, um, right on the front page was a story about a man who had passed away, wrapped in the same river in the same area that we were going to raft the next day. And I read the details, and I was furious. I was concerned because this guy was kicked out of his uh, raft, of a seven-man raft. He was kicked out, and his crew did not know how to find him, number one. And when they did find him, they didn't know how to get him in the boat. It's not as easy as it looks if you guys haven't been rafting to get someone in a raging river back in the boat. And so I did something the next morning as me and my brother arrived, and we had a crew chief there. Uh, give it instructions. That happens every, if you guys have been on a rafting trip, you, you have your, your crew chief giving you specific instructions. And most of the time, especially serious kayakers and rafters like us, we don't listen. That's your final moment, you know, that you pull out your phone and you text loved ones, you tell them goodbye, and I'm going to put this phone in a bag and I'm not going to see it for all day. Probably won't have service up in the mountains and valleys anyway. And so everybody just kind of sleepwalks as our guide is giving instructions. And I was getting frustrated this morning because me and my brother were the only ones paying attention. We were the only ones listening to this, to this guide. This is our crew chief. And it frustrated me because I understood that, listen, if I'm the one, especially me, if I'm the one that gets kicked out of this boat on a class four rapid, I want my crew to have listened to what was just said. And nobody was. I was the only one listening. And it frustrated me. I expected our tour guide, not our tour guide, I expected our, our chief, our guide, to raise his voice, to do anything, to get their attention, come up, shake his finger in your, in your face, do anything, maybe like a school teacher would do, to, to calm down and, and get your class to listen. But he wasn't doing that. And I was getting frustrated. I think Jesus felt that frustration when the story of Luke 16 comes up. 
Jesus had just, he just had a rough, a rough week. He's coming from the Samara Galilee area, making his last trip back to Jerusalem. And he had had a hard week. He, uh, he was frustrated. People kept dogging him and his disciples for eating with sinners, for the way they washed their hands. And so Jesus told stories along the way, like things would get lost or misplaced, like coins, sheep, the squandering of a trust of a servant, just to name a few of those stories. And then, in each of these stories, there's this visitation of grace that reverses the plot line. Something takes place in or around Jesus that changes the way that things are. And I need to warn you before we enter this chapter, and I know you're thinking, I've read that story, I've read the rich man Lazarus story hundreds and hundreds of times. I've got to tell you, it's the most disturbing story I believe that Jesus ever told. It's the most frightening. It's packed with words such as torment, with pain, with suffering that teaches concepts that are hard for me to swallow, such as conscious banishment, punishment. And if you listen closely, and I mean really closely, it gives us a glimpse of God's love and how repentance always orients us to the kingdom of God. And before we read the text together, let me, let me preface this. This story that you're about to hear, it was known by most every kid that walked the street when Jesus told it. It was an Egyptian tale, actually. It was a pharaoh named Osiris. See Osiris. And he had a, he had a journey and this tale is based on this journey, this dream that he had had, that he's telling in this tale of how he observed the fate of a rich man and a commoner and portrayed as this reversal of fortunes. And this rich man, he dreamed that this rich man had a funeral and it was totally unattended. And then there's this commoner that was buried. And there was all this pomp and circumstance and, and he was... Uh, just dressed in oils, expensive oils and myrrh. And he had an amazing funeral in the tale. And so Jesus' hearers would hear this story that Jesus is about to tell and say, you know, I recognize that. I know a version of that, only the three names were changed. Jesus inserted the names Lazarus, Abraham, and an unnamed man, that was just a rich man, a wealthy man, a wealth baron. And so I just want you to know that Jesus retells this story that they all know in a way that changes the setting for his Jewish crowd that was right in front of him. All right, let's read together. Uh, Luke 16, verses 19 through 23. Listen to these words. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, full of sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked the sores. The poor man died and was carried 
by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. I pause right there. Again, if you're like me, you've heard this story. Your mind, I already know where it's going. This is kind of our go-to verse, or this is kind of our go-to chapter to study the concepts of Things like Hades and Abraham's bosom and the great gulf. This is kind of where we go, right? And Jesus tells this story in response to the the type of hospitality he's experienced in the last few weeks from Galilee and Samaria. The scribes are trying to discredit him at every step. They discredit him for healing on the Sabbath, eating with sinners, the hospitality back and forth with each other. And the scribes... Actually, the Pharisees never saw their wealth in conflict to the relationship with God. They never saw that. In fact, it was just the opposite. And when Jesus told the story about a rich man, you know what they thought? Blessed man. Must have been a good guy. Got his act in order. Nice relationship with God. Must be. That's the first thing that they think when you tell a story about a rich man. And so while Jesus describes this rich man, no doubt that's what they were thinking And then Jesus describes Lazarus. And Lazarus was the invisible man. Totally invisible to the rest of the world. Nobody sees him. He shares that fate that often happens in societies like ours of the poor, those in nursing homes, halfway houses, the sick, the exploited, Describes a lot of people I meet in India. People you and I would normally never think about. Not a second. Totally invisible to the world. We do that in our society sometimes. Someone, Luke says, someone had to help Lazarus to the gate of this wealthy man. He had to be helped to even get there. And in those days, the wealthy didn't have napkins. They're at their dinner tables. You know what they used? There's a special bread that was baked. Not the eating kind. You had the eating bread. You had the roti that you ate. But, but they also made this bread that we would have called a napkin. You, you, after the meal, you would uh, uh, take your hands and fingers and break it up and... and Take the grease and the gravy and the barbecue or whatever, you know, off of your fingers, and you tossed it at the end of the table, and usually it fell off to the ground and accumulated on the ground somewhere. Lazarus was there at the gate begging for that bread. That's the bread that Lazarus was begging for. And I want you to notice the contrast before we go on. This sets up the rest of the story. And the contrast is this. There's this marvelous wealth-bearing basking in leisure, a named beggar lying in misery. And between them's a gate, a tall spiked gate. Inside, a person is feasting. Outside, the person is starving. And from above, God renders a judgment. He renders a verdict. The curtain of death falls, the story says, both men die, and the stage lights are turned up to the second scene that we're about to read. And we gasp at the reversal 
of the destiny, the beggar who had nothing now has everything, and the wealthy man who had everything now has nothing. And the beggar whose body probably was cast into a garbage dump named Gehenna is now honored with a seat near Abraham. And the rich man who had been buried in this awesome tomb and anointed with precious uh, oils is now destined for the Gehenna of eternity. The pain of Lazarus has ended and the pain of the rich man just beginning. And if the story ends there, that's quite a story. We'd be stunned. But Jesus goes on. Jesus is going to escort us and ask us to hang our toes over the edge. Watch what happens next, Jesus says. Let's read verses 24 through 26. And Lazarus. No, and he calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy upon me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that you in your lifetime received good things and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he's comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all of this, between you and I, there's this great chasm that's been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. I pause right there. The rich man is in this relentless torment. Five verses make four references to his pain. And the rich man looks up and he can see the place of comfort that he'll never know. He's the one that's now a beggar. Abraham's response to his request affirms that the patience of God ends at the gates of hell. And notice in verse 26 this phrase, a great chasm has been fixed. That word fixed in the Greek means to make fast, literally to cement, to make permanently established. It's the same word that Paul uses in Romans 16, 25 when he talks about you and I being fixed and established in Christ. It's that same word. Fascinating that the same power which has established the saved in the kingdom also seals the fate for the lost. And the story now concludes with a surprising twist. Growing up reading this, I never noticed the end of the church. I never noticed where Jesus was really going with. I didn't realize the real plot that Jesus was going with in this story until not many years ago. Here's where the story is going all along. Read with me. Begin with verse 27. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they don't hear Moses, if they don't hear the prophets, the teachers, nor, neither will they be convinced if someone should be raised from the dead. 
This is where the story was going all along. The climax of the story, the main point is this. What's to become of my five brothers? That's the point of the story. What's to become of my five brothers? Jesus' story made this invisible Lazarus visible to the very people who only had eyes for the rich man in the crowds. And Jesus wants us to know how he views things. That was the purpose of the story. You know what he sees? He sees men like Lazarus, guys, guys that are invisible to you and I. To, those, to the crowd that he told the story to, Lazarus was invisible. Nobody saw him. Nobody paid attention to him. Jesus says, I see people that you don't see. And furthermore, he overlooks people that you and I pay attention to. Lazarus was invisible to everyone except Jesus. And after reading this story, Jesus would like nothing more than for you and I to see the people he sees. To notice the invisible in our lives. And notice this, the rich man suddenly, this is what amazes me, the rich man, as soon as he figured out he was never going to be where Lazarus was, you know what the first thing he did? Prayed for missionaries. Did you catch that? Begged Abraham, send a missionary to my five brothers. That was the first thing on his mind when he knew his fate. The rich man and Abraham had this quite a back and forth of how God's word is obeyed and received. And Abraham tells the rich man, no one repents from seeing and listening to one who's raised from the dead. I got to be honest with you, I had to pause there. Is that really true? You believe that? <laughs> I mean, think about it logically. What if something wonder, some wonderful miracle happened? We all know people. We all have loved ones in our lives who've not obeyed the gospel. And you think, what in the world will it take? They've heard teachings, they've heard preaching. Maybe if this happened, maybe if that happened, and our mind's starting to wonder of what could happen. Maybe if someone rose from the dead, well, maybe they'd listen then. Something so miraculous as that, surely, if Lazarus would go back and tell my five brothers, tell my loved ones, tell my family, experience it now, then they'd think twice about repentance. And Abraham says, no, that's not how it works. Can I give you two examples? You know, Jesus actually had a friend named Lazarus. Coincidence? <laughs> and guess what he did when Lazarus died? Jesus raised him from the dead. Well, the few times, that's when Jesus wept, right? As a little sidebar note, I have to wonder why Jesus wept after reading this story? Was it because Lazarus was where he was at or was it because he had to bring him back? I, I just wonder. What happened? What happened? We're not going to go back and read it. We don't have time. But when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, 
Was there a great national repentance the next day? Was there? The rich man argued that that's, if that happened in my family, that's what, that's what it would take to, to bring repentance. And Abraham said, no. So here's an example. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And up until that point, the, the Pharisees, uh, the, the scribes, the Jewish leaders of the day, they were only frustrated by Jesus. After Jesus raised him from the dead, you know what they thought then? I'm going to kill him. <laughs> That's what raising from the dead and having him come back and tell the message of God. I want to kill you. Let me give you a second example. Jesus died on a Friday evening, raised on the third day. What happened Monday morning? The women found the tomb open. Was there a great national repentance on Monday? To your shock, like me, no great repentance happened. When did the repentance begin? A little sermon by Peter, right? <laughs> some teacher, some Peter got up and had just a powerful but simple message. And 3,000 repented. 3,000 men. I think Abraham was right. I can think of those two examples that Abraham was exactly right. Raise someone from the dead so that my brother who won't listen to me or anybody or my grandfather who just insists because he's stubborn will not come to church with me, will not... You know. Abraham reminds us there's only one way that bringing someone to repentance and that's through preaching, the foolishness of preaching. That's how it happens. And in our minds, we think, surely there's got to be a better way. Surely. I remember being a teenager like these young people on the front. Just shaking my head. I, I, I didn't even want to bring someone to church with me. I just said, ah, listen to this preaching. <laughs> what a waste of time. Man, looking back. I know that Abraham was right. Nothing miraculous, nothing special, no special entertaining way, not the singing, not... It's the foolishness of preaching that changes hearts. When souls, true souls, are researching, this is the way it's done. Luke shows us that those who know the horrors of hell will do whatever it takes to think about their family and their friends, to save them to where they're going. And as we close, I want you to look at one more, just one more truth that I find interesting in this story. I think out of this story, is not all doom and gloom. I believe this story also teaches us about the unimaginable love of God. I know what you're thinking. We just talked about misery and punishment and hell. And where do you get that in the story? I know what you're thinking. Because God there went there. God went there for you. God went there so you don't have to experience it. God spanned the chasm. The chasm that Abraham said can't be crossed by you and I, he did. He sent his son to cross that gulf so we wouldn't have to. And never forget that while on the cross, 
2 Corinthians 5.21 says, Jesus became sin. Isaiah 56.3, Jesus became sin. The very object that God hates, the very object that God punishes, he went there so you didn't have to experience what the rich man was going through his mind. Like the rich man, Jesus knew hell. But unlike the rich man, Jesus didn't stay there. So how do we apply this message today? I believe this is an evangelistic sermon. I believe this is a sermon that should redouble. If you're sitting here in the pews and you are saved, you have obeyed the gospel, you're right there with Lazarus. You've lived this life in such a way of repentance that oriented you to the kingdom of God. You should be jumping up and down now because you don't have to experience what the rich man experienced. And I hope after reading this, and I hope after you read it in the future, the first thing that comes to your mind is, can I redouble a couple of efforts? Do I still have loved ones? I do not want, I do not want to be in that place that I look back and say, did I not teach enough? Did I not preach enough? I hope after you read this again, you'll, you'll think about what to me is the moral of the story is what happens to my five brothers? Because each one of you here, you have five brothers. You have family members. You have loved ones. And maybe they're, maybe you've had loved ones in the past who've passed on. They're sitting in that spot that are remembering like the rich man remembered and are praying for you. They're just begging God. They're begging Abraham, will you send someone to my family? Will you think about that the next time you hear this story? If you haven't obeyed the gospel, man, reread what the rich man was thinking. Put yourself in his place. While you have time, because as this story lets us know, God's grace has a limitation. And that limitation is at the gates of hell. If you haven't obeyed the gospel, we're going to give some space this morning. We're going to sing a song and just beg with you and plead with you. And maybe someone's on the other side of that gulf praying that you were here at this moment for such a time as this. If that's you, will you come as we stand and sing?